Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams, and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well, plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Over 25 years ago, on September 29, 1998, we watched a brainy girl with curly hair drop everything to follow a guy she only kind of knew all the way to college. And so began Felicity. My name is Juliette Littman, and I'm a Felicity superfan. Join me, Amanda Foreman, who you may know better as Megan, the roommate, and Greg Grunberg, who you may also know as Sean Blunberg, as the three of us revisit our favorite moments from the show and talk to the people who helped shape it. Listen to Dear Felicity, presented by Walmart on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Alarm! Alarm! Uh, hello all and welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and James Holland, your Second World War podcast of choice. Jim, you're you still in Cornwall writing? Yeah, I'm still there in my in my, my writing retreat. Uh, Wilf has just shot down a, a Messerschmitt 109 and has got his eye uh, lining up a Heinkel 111 over the beaches of Dunkirk. So he's about to come through the cloud and descend down over the, over the beaches themselves. And there's going to be a fantastic link up with another character. So I'm quite happy with that. Lovely. Well, I've just had that moment where you couldn't... I, I thought I'd written a chapter yesterday on one computer and it turns out I'd written on the other and I thought I'd lost <gasps> a whole day's work. No, but you haven't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I found it. I found it. I found it. So, oh. so we can proceed. And uh, we're joined <laughs> by, by uh, a special guest, sort of more from from my uh, world, I suppose, or my old briar patch, or my current still. Um, We should get this guest to introduce themselves. Yeah, it's going to be easier if I just introduce myself. That's such a good <laughs> It's Eddie Izzard here, or Susie Izzard, or Susie Eddie Izzard, which wasn't my plan. I was going to be one or the other, and I just thought people could choose. So I said, prefer Susie, don't mind Eddie, prefer she, her, don't mind he, him. So no one can make a mistake. This is designed to take the problems out of... To take the flack of name conundrums. Yeah, remove flack from this. So if people call me Eddie, I like when people call me Eddie because I don't want it to be a dead name, so I want it still to be active because I am gender fluid. Um, but a lot of people are delighting in calling me Susie, and some people call me Susie Eddie, which I wasn't planning with, and now I'm going with and saying, ah, oh, what the hell, just call me any of those. Just don't call me Arthur or Sabrina <laughs> because then they're not where I'm going. Well, I should say, you, you, you and I have actually, we have actually met before, and I can't remember if it was 2014 or 2019, but it was one of those anniversaries uh, over in Normandy, and we were in a studio, I think, and maybe it was 2014, because I'm pretty sure it was in Aramanche. So when you were running your marathons, I remember I remember watching it, so I can confirm that this happened. Well, this was something I really wanted to talk about, because the thing I was doing that, I don't know if you remember what, because you're, you know, you're expert and all the great experts on on d-day and normandy were there and i'd been going for many years and i went with my dad and my dad had first taken this years ago but i started doing this thing which has never got traction and no one's really interested in it and maybe people think it's a bit wrong to do but i do these three 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 gigs which i do three three gigs in three hours in three languages the three main languages used in the battle of normandy so i do it in german then i do it in uh, english then i do it in french i finish in french because it's in the land of france and uh, a 55 minute gig, then we chase the audience over and then we do the next one. And we do it in Caen and we do it on that day and we, and the profits go to charities. And the German, to, to, to the um, Tripping Stones. Uh, do you know the Tripping Stones one? This great, wonderful guy, he's, a, he's an artist. Gunter Demnick, I think is his name. He puts down brass stones in front of any house where the Nazis took people away and they murdered them, they tortured them. Uh, oh, tripping yeah. Stones. 
Stolperstein. Stolperstein. Yeah, I've got a German name, even though I can speak German. Or somewhat speak German. And uh, so I do these things, and, and, and I know the 80th is coming up, so I'm going to go back there. And we've now got a theatre in Connor. I'm going to do it. So I'm, so I'm encouraging British people to come, because the profits go to China, encouraging French people to come who know me less, even though I am known in France, but only through the comedy fraternity more. And the German people have got to go to, <laughs> go to Normandy and turn up and then come to the show. But the German gigs have been fantastic. I, I remember <laughs> last time I was there, which was 2019, I think it was. Anyway, 2019 did the German gig, and I thought it was a really good gig in German. And just to, to, to commemorate the Fallen, but celebrate everyone who's tried for peace and reconciliation and understanding at a time when the world is going to hell in a handbag, I just, I like doing these gigs. So I'm going to keep doing them every fifth anniversary because I think it's positive. But you, you've just been running the marathons, haven't you? Because I remember you on that broadcast talking about how how you could relate to the idea of just getting your head down and doing something, getting on with it, the way that people would have had to man an anti-aircraft gun or whatever, you know, framing it in those terms about how, you'd, how your mental attitude to the marathons was. It was a determination. It was more like selection because I know selection for having talked to Special Forces people about selection and, and how hellish it is um and this was a plan of mine i was quite seriously how to to get in and do that um but the the marathons were it it has det relentlessness determination it just no one's firing at you so it is a, a very different thing to any one of the forces but um you know it's raising money for good things and helping people and some people who are yeah, yeah. Uh, british people who are ex-forces people who have injuries or um, suffering from PTSD and stuff. So it's, um, that was in 2009, actually. So it was a little bit after, but I was still doing them. And I did, I did South Africa. I tried in South Africa 2014 and then I just kept doing them. But Eddie, one of the things that I remember about, about that being over in 2014 in, in Aramanche was it was this incredible party atmosphere. It was, it was just fantastic. You know, everyone was, you know, it was so multinational. There were, were all sorts of people there from different, all different countries around Europe. There weren't so many Germans, admittedly, but there were still Germans there as well. And, and everyone was in this kind of, sort of party celebratory kind of mood. And of course, all the all the veterans that were there were being treated like kings. And and it was really joyous, is what I remember about it, really distinctly. And it's so depressing, isn't it, that here we are, kind of, you know, almost two anniversaries later, eight years later, ten years later, rather. And we're confronted by a world which is so riven and and so unconnected and well i would argue actually as someone who's going into politics but i'm looking at it putin is it's putin's war it's not the russian people's war so that's what's going on there the one in the middle east hamas israel that is that goes all the way back to 67 and and the two-state system, you've got it, that's the only way peace is, yeah, and beyond, and that's the only way peace can, can be had. But it's, it's, it's getting more and more down to just individuals starting things up. Putin started all that. Without Putin being there, none of that would have happened. None of that Ukraine-Russia situation war would have happened at all. So it's, it's less and less individuals who want it. And if you added up the 8 billion people in the world, it's going to be 99.9999 are recurring who actually want live and let live in peace. So even though it looks completely hellish in the world, the reality is, is most of us don't want that. And, but I'm with you on this celebrate, uh, commemoration and celebration. That's what uh, the D-Day anniversary should be. Commemorate the people who fell, and celebrate. Celebrate the freedoms that they fought for. That was... Yes, exactly. And celebrate, yes, celebrate what German people are now doing. Because I said this, this is what I said at the end of Valkyrie, this thing that the, we had. So, okay, we do Valkyrie. There's a press conference at the end. I, I got the impression that Tom Cruise hadn't been doing press in the morning. But anyway, there's the, everyone's <laughs> out there from Ken Brown, Tom Cruise, uh, Tom Wilkinson, big names, and me, an ex-street performer, standing at the end, who broke into Pinewood Studios when I was 15. I'm very happy to be there. And I know a lot about you know, World War II. I'm semi-encyclopedic as opposed to you guys being fully encyclopedic. And so anyway, they're going through this uh, stuff. First question, Tom Cruise. Second question, Tom Cruise. Third question, Tom Cruise. Fourth question. Everyone just wanted to talk to Tom. It was getting a little embarrassing. He found it embarrassing. He said, guys, jump in. So I did this, this technique, which I do on 
because quite often people are asking questions to other people, is I jump in on the tail end of a question, which is a very good technique for people to use. If they say, big, big name, here's a question, you can jump in. Can I just add to what Tom said there and say this, that, and the other thing? <laughs> you can always tail end on uh, a question, and then you, you just get some words in somewhere, and then you sit down and think, well, I thought, <laughs> and I did that, and I thought, well, that's it for me. And tw- it had gone on some time, and then this guy got up and said, Eddie, said, you said Hitler was a mass-murdering fuckhead in your stand-up. Do you still stand by your words? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I realized instantly that this wasn't an attack. This was someone just giving me an open gift. And I said, yes, absolutely, because he kidnapped the country. I've, I've come up with this phrase that he kidnapped Germany. Germany before 33, it was imperialist. We were all imperialists in Europe. Since 45, they tried to be exemplary. For 12 years, they were kidnapped by this mass murdering fuckhead. And I said, the real Germany, you know, Germany was there before 33. And it was just after Obama had come down, just before he became president, he'd done a speech to a quarter of a million Germans. And I said, the real Germany uh, and the real Germans were there before 33, they're since 45, and they're the ones out there, the quarter of a million that were watching Barack Obama. And that's the Germany that I strongly believe is here to stay. And um, then it was a big round of applause, end of press conference. So I, I might drop the end of the Valkyrie press conference, which I was quite happy with. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, your interest in the Second World War, though, it, it's not not unlike my... I mean, if you've, you, you've been listening to the podcast, haven't you? Uh, about 40, 40 episodes of yours. Right, so... Only 40. I mean, yeah, I mean... You've, you've got a long I mean, way to go, to be fair. Barely, they barely got your beginner's badge there. Um, the, 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 <laughs> we should actually think about doing that, shouldn't we? You know, give people little badges once they get past... So you can get your bronze medal, your bronze badge, well, think, when you get to, I don't know, what, 100... Yeah, I'd like to add it to my bronze survival swimming. I would like bronze. <laughs> I think, well, you're a, all right, you're a lance corporal. I think that's how we do it. We, yeah, we, 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 you've got your one stripe if you've listened to Ford. Only when you've top 700 do you get to officer class. <laughs> uh, but I've also listened to, your, to Al reading the Battle of Britain one. Uh, which which goes very wide on that. And I'm just listening to uh, Normandy 44, not because uh, I wanted to come on and, and, and have a chat with you guys, but just because I listen to these and I have listened to the Anthony Beaver ones. And, and I, I don't, I'm a dyslexic person, so I, reading it takes forever for me. So I just have people read them. And Al, you read very well, very bright and, and upfront the way you were reading it. Thank but, you. He does. He does a marvellous job. He does a marvellous job. Right at the end, you did a chat with James, you chatted with James about, you know, just summing up the book and everything. And also, just so you know, at the end of that audiobook, it's, it suddenly cuts to, to another book. It cuts to some other thing, I think Burma. So it, it's, they can change that online. They can put out a bit of software that can actually, but you get actually the end of the chat for thing, and you get the end of Burma, which is, what's that doing on here? But anyway, just so you know. <laughs> I, well, maybe I, it's a plug for another book. It, it, it does. Break. It does it seem be. like a plug. There we go. <laughs> but, um, well, thank you for listening to it. <laughs> no, it's you have a very good way about it. I like it. I'm going to listen to all of it now, and then I'll report back. But you say, well, I'm not going to change any of it. But no, it is because it's, it, I like the fact you went wide. I like the fact that I was a certain battle of uh, the Atlantic in there. Well, you know, micro to macro and all the rest of it. Yeah, but also the things that you've said over, over the time on your podcast, that the fact that um, everyone goes, oh, blitzkrieg, 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 but that's what Napoleon was doing, and surely that was what Alexander the Great was doing. Let's just move faster than the other guy. And also, if you've been preparing for war, everyone in Germany is preparing for war, anyone who's Nazi positive, if that's a, t- t- a phrase <laughs> one could use. I think I am Nazi positive. <laughs> that's a great phrase. I really like that. I'm definitely going to use that again. Are you uh, Nazi positive? <laughs> no, I'm very much humanity positive and Nazi negative. And, um, but, but, you know, those kids, those kids going into school were getting Nazi indoctrination all the way through. So that's six years before they hit 39. And if you're so 12 or 13, no, no wonder the Hitler youth, the SS Hitler youth was so amazing because teenage kids can do most of what adult kids can do. You just give them that. And they also don't know fear. The fact that teenagers don't know fear, they're just saying, well, we're going to get medals, we're going to get this, we're going to get that. Um, and also the, this idea that everyone got better at at fighting that war as the time went on. And normally we, we were expected, the church was expecting France to hold out for a lot longer, and that just didn't happen. So this didn't have time to get up to speed. And so any, it's not rocket science what Blitzkrieg was. It was just, if you've been practicing for and getting ready for ages, you'll be way ahead of the curve. 
Well, yeah, the, the other thing that, I, that sort of slightly proves that there's nothing particularly new about it is the fact that the main crossing point over the River Meuse is exactly the same in 1940 as it is in 1914, as it is in 1870. I mean, it's not, it's not just that they choose the crossing point of the Meuse at Sedan. It is the exact same crossing point for the... I mean, the three crossing points in May 1940 where they cross, cross at Sedan, but, but the number one main one where Guderian crosses over is the very same that it was twice before. Because it gives you the high ground into... Anyway, I mean, it's, it's Well, all, yeah, it's yeah, all... there's good practical reasons for it, but, but it does suggest that there's kind of not that much original about it. You know, we've done this before, boys, let's do it again. You know, yeah. it's that kind of approach, isn't it? I've listened to uh, audiobooks where they've some people have talked about the, the Muse River. And I go, and I keep repeating. No, it's Mers. It's Mers. You know, I, re- <laughs> I talk to the audiobook. If people get pronounced... Oh, yeah, I've got to tell you, it's, it's Mill. It's milch. You mean milch. 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 Oh, uh, just milch. like you think it would be. Not milch, but milch. I believe, but also... Milch. It, milch. it could like, even be milk. Yeah, it, it means milk. It means milk. So it's like Harvey Milk in, in, uh, in the San Francisco Politician, and it's Harvey Milk. But it's milch, and uh, just in case you... Because I know you're going... I know you've already talked about that, so you're not going to go back to that. But, um, but also, there's a thing is that, you know, the pronunciation in Berlin will be different to the pronunciation in Munich. And yeah, of, um, course. of course, like like it would be in you know Scotland or Newcastle to London and Cornwall. So it's uh, interesting on that. Okay, well, well now now we know. <laughs> yes, now you know. Now that you've dealt with it, and you're not going back that, there ever again. But also, the other thing is, I mean, I, I just find that sort of you know speaking in a German accent really really funny. Al can do it really really well. He's he you know whenever whenever we're in Germany and we need uh, need someone to read out a German notice. Al does it, and he does it absolutely fantastically. But, yeah, I've got it down. But, but milk. It just milk. sounds better. It's milk. milk. It's like, milk. like ich. It's ich bin ein Berliner. It's well, milk. Of course, it, but, milk. But, it, but, it's, but it just sounds funny, doesn't it? It's just... <laughs> well, did you st- the study at school, Al? Did you? Yeah, did. yeah, I did I did an O-level in it, so it's, it's a very long time ago. But my, my elder sister is fluent because we have Austrian cousins. Uh, so so she speaks Austrian... Yeah, yeah. Well, my grandmother, my grandmother was from from Salzburg, and um, God, and I've so I family. Yeah, yeah. So I family in Vienna, and and she went to live with them. For, but they weren't Nazi ages. negative, were they? They, uh, well, no, they, they were Nazi negative. Were they Nazi positive? They were Nazi negative. My grandmother got out with my grand because my grandfather was the BBC's man in that part of the world and lodged with my grandmother's mother. And they met, and then he brought her. You know, he brought her back before the Anschluss. And so she worked in the she worked in the black radio with Sefton Delmer doing, you know, reading stuff out as far as as far as I know. So so anyway, so my elder sister is completely fluent, but she speaks Austrian German. So she says Zwo instead of Zwei. You know, she talks Austrian, really. So, yeah, I mean, so the G- Germans around and my father, my father did about 10 years ago, did night school and relearned it because he never he never spoke German. They never spoke German at home because. Because when he was a kid, you know, in the 1940s, you didn't want to be wandering around Woburn or wherever it was they lived, you know, near Bedford, speaking German. It, it, uh, although it, although that part of Bedfordshire was full of foreign governments, so you had lots of Czechs there and lots of Poles and Austrians and, and Germans and people. But anyway, yeah, so I do speak a bit of German. Oh. Du kannst ein bisschen Deutsch sprechen, das ist sehr gut. Yeah, du kannst sehr klein bisschen, yeah. But ich, ich, uh, uh, I'm, good at, I'm good at ordering off a menu, aren't I, Jim? I mean, I'm very handy for oh, that. You're amazing Zwei, at it. You're absolutely amazing Zwei at it. Schweinhexe, bitte schön, and all that, yeah. So, so, but but I'm, <laughs> I'm now on my 1,114th day streak on Italian Duolingo, which I'm very proud of. <laughs> Um, I'm can still pretty crap, to be perfectly honest. Oh, okay, James, <laughs> I, I, I can give you the, the tip on how to get the language. You have to get a gig. You have to go to write a book in Italian. What, why are you doing Italian? You just loved it? You've got a family? <coughs> yeah, because I, 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 I end up writing about it a lot, and um, I really love it, and I love the place. And I just, I also just think it would, gave up French at O-level, never done a language since, and I'm a bit embarrassed about it, and I just thought it would be a good thing to do. And I love it. I love it. I really enjoy it. To you or anyone, the Duolingo, all the languagings are great, but the real thing is is immersion. Immersion is the key. Of course. You want, if you can get a gig there, I mean, can you write a book there where you're interacting with a lot of Italian people and they switch everything off and they're just giving you Italian 24-7? That's well, the, the bottom that, line is, you know, the children are getting a little bit older. There's nothing to stop us going spending a year over there soon. And also, it's interesting, at school you get taught, well, I was taught, uh, my generation, I'm a little older than you guys. It was 90% written and 10% oral in uh, when you're learning. Right. And then you get there and it's 90% oral and 10% written. 
you know, it's completely inverse. Who the hell goes yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and writes a thing? You go to a shop and write stuff down, you know. But that was the thing about, I did A-level A level French, and we went from the, the O-level, which where we did talk a lot, and there was, there was a oral component and all that. And then A-level French, we were having to read John Paul Sartre and write, <laughs> it was basically a literature paper, and you had to read, you had to read, Sartre plays and Francois Mauriac and all this, and basically do it. It was like an English A level, but it was in French, which was completely beyond. And presumably, me. you weren't sure whether and you were reading surrealism or whether you just translated it wrong. You just didn't. You just didn't know. You know. You 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 know. To read Sartre and to understand what's really going, on, you need to be completely on top of French. You know, like totally on top of French, and also know what tradition he's in and all this sort of stuff. And, and I just wanted to learn how to speak French. I just wanted to learn how to speak French. And, and the trail go went cold for A-level, you know, when it, it was a long time ago. Well, the, the, I because I was, you know, pos- I was uh, on our European question that still floats around our country. I was more positive of making connections than breaking connections. So after something happened in that referendum, I decided to go. I, I, I don't write my shows. I, I stand-up shows, I tend to develop them by workshopping them and endlessly workshopping. So I decided to go to France and do it in Paris. So I was two months in Paris and then and then a month in Germany as well, just making wow. up stuff going, Bonsoir Paris, je suis ici pour improviser. Oui, pourquoi the fuck pas, baby? And, uh, and they like that. And <laughs> then I went to Germany and said the same, Improvisation auf Deutsch, ja, warum the fuck nicht? And that sounds very good, Jim. Um, I've done stand. I've done the pub landlord in French, which involved. Have you? Yeah, 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 yeah. There's a gig called Altitude Festival, which is a on a ski resort, and I went and did that. And they had a they had an Anglo French gig, so so I basically sat. It's quite a while ago, so the app wasn't very good, but I got like a Collins app on my phone because I can work the verbs. If I know what the verbs are, I can make them work. You know, I know what the endings mean in French and all that. So I can work them. So I looked up the verbs I needed and the, and the adjective and the adjectives and the, you know, the words I needed and went on and did it. It's basically, it's a transliteration of a whole chunk of pub landlord standup. And it, what was amazing is it, I know all the audience were being generous given the circumstances, but it worked because <laughs> the, the core idea was the same so it worked and um that was a re- that was a really eye-opening moment because like i'm often told what i do is very very british whereas actually th- i think it's very very parochial parochial is universal as an iron law of comedy it worked uh, you know la bière pour les hommes et le vin blanc pour les femmes and the, and yeah they, they've seen a guy like that that exists yeah. Well, they, they actually, in fact, they love it in Germany and France. Me and my brother, well, my brother's the expert in languages. Uh, in France and Germany, they very much go, men do this, but women do this. Men do this, but women do this. Which we all find slightly, well, because they do have fantastic comedy now in Germany and France. But there was a, a substrata, you know, a basic strata of, well, men do this and women do this. Les femmes, les hommes, les femmes. There was a caveman show that a guy in America came up with, the caveman show. Yes. And they did, and they loved that in Germany. Then there's a gay version of that they did as well. And men do this, but men do this. Anyway. But yeah, tour, <laughs> tour in France in French is just beautiful. I had this rule that if you don't know the words in French or, or another language, well, maybe not all over Latin languages, just try it in English with an accent. So I was trying to say I was focused and I was in Lyon or somewhere. <laughs> and I said to the, j'ai un focus, j'ai un focus, like I have a focus. And my, my friend, Yassine Bellus, the French comedian who was touring with me, he said, you've just told them you have a false arse. And uh, that's not the way to say it. So sometimes it goes very wrong. Sometimes it goes. I I wanted to say this about people, you know, Austrian Link and stuff. Everyone know Casablanca. And when you watch it again... I watched it with my daughter just the other day, who's 16. Well, you'll know that Conrad Veidt is... uh, You may not know his name, but he's the guy playing the very full-blown Nazi. And his name is Conrad Veidt. And then Paul Henreid is how you pronounce it in German, but I think Henreid is how they... Because everyone gets... Confused English speakers get confused on the E's and that. He's Victor Laszlo. Yeah, Victor Laszlo. And and you'd think, well, Victor Laszlo, I like that kind of guy. That's a Czech guy, and I'd like that guy, you know, in the, in the characters. And that that Conrad Veidt, no, I don't like him. He seems like a standard Nazi person. And then now they were both filming this in in uh, L.A. Um, Conrad Veidt was very was very Nazi neg- negative on the Nazis. He'd got out. He's the first out, and he brought when his friend. Uh, played Victor Laszlo, Paul Henry wanted to get out. He got him out too. They're both very anti-fascist and anti-Nazis, and uh, one got the other one out. Was Henry Czech, or was he uh, in real life, or was he German? No, he's German. There are two Germans there, both friends. One had got the other one out. 
Because you know you had to have a sponsor to get them in. He got he got to England first, uh, Conrad Veidt. Conrad Veidt was Colonel Strasser. Yes, that's it. Yeah, it's and it's an accidentally brilliant film. It was just another film that they made, but it, it all landed, all the things landed up perfectly to become this this thing. I have such a crush on Ingrid Bergman, though. I mean, she's so gorgeous in it. <laughs> Don't you think? Yes, no, she she is. She's absolutely gorgeous, and uh, and she got blackballed by America because she married, she left her husband and. Left their kids, I think, and ran off with another guy. So um, they weren't. She had an affair with Robert Kappa in Paris at the end of the war. Oh wow! That's right. Oh wow! Yeah, I yeah, didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. But um, yes, I was going to mention this thing. This this could sound like a plug, but it's it's a good plug because there's a Pete Waterman has got this show called uh, Little Trains, Big Names, and it's people with profiles who've got model railways. And James May, I know I know you've had James on. He's his one's going out yeah, tomorrow on more four. And J- J- Jules Holland's got his. And and I'm not sure what James is going to be like, but Jules was a very personal one, and it was in his house, and and it's great. He's got this huge room upstairs. But I had a rail with my brother with and my father we had this railway and then we put it in a box as you do when you're about 13 and it, and it ends up in the attic and and then i decided to, instead of selling it to give it over to the bexhill museum because i grew up in bexhill near hastings near eastbourne and brighton and they made it and i said here's some money go and make it fabulous so they made it fabulous in bexhill museum and that's a little push button How brilliant. and then so that's kind of nice that's just railways that's nothing to do with what, what your podcast is about but then I said, can we do one with a winter thing? Can we overlay winter on it? Can we spray winter on it? He said, you spray it on, you're never going to get off. It's just going to be winter forever. So he said, we'll do another railway for you. And I said, well, I haven't got any ideas for another railway. But then I was talking to my dad before he died, and he talked about the, the, the winter of uh, 1940, came back from being evacuated to St. Albans from Bexhill. It was so rough, because I know you've talked about Operation Zelu and how it wasn't really going to happen, but everyone thought it was going to happen, because not only was my dad evacuated by the government, etc., but my my grandmother, his mother, and his grandmother, my gran and great-gran, they evacuated themselves to St. Albans. They were so scared that, you know, because if you think about it, it was palpable that they were coming. It really was. Well, and if they were going to come, it was going to be at Bexhill, let's face it. It was. Bexhill was right on the thing. From Eastbourne to Ramsgate, that was, I've, I've listened to you. That was it. I think that's in your Battle of Britain thing. It's right up to Eastbourne. Then you get into the cliffs, and then it, it starts from Brighton onwards up to Isle of Wight. I think I'm just repeating your lines here. So Bexhill was right in the front, front and we had scaff bars on the front, and it was a heavy-duty uh, snowing 1940. So I said, Dad, we're going to make a Bexhill 1940 winter wartime model railway. And so we've made it in N-Gage, and it's at the Bexhill Museum, and, and people are coming in droves now. Pete Waterman just covered it, and you can see that on more 4 if people look at it. But it's it's got bombed-out houses, it's got a downed a Spitfire, downed high ankle. Yeah, it's got gun emplacements, it's got all the scaff bars on the front. Just scaffolding was going to stop the Nazi tanks, which are going to stop for about a minute. And it was, and it's Bexhill, and Spike Milligan was there at that same time, but yeah. with a gun up on Galley Hill <laughs> and that's covered as well and he was playing with his band and having sex in doorways uh, actually I think he was having so much sex he was having sex in houses rather than doorways but people all the way up Devonshire Road which is it's a very very quiet seaside town very very conservative but sex was happening in every single doorway I, from what I've read <laughs> um, I just, which I think is fascinating it was the most exciting thing that ever happened to Bexhill and most of the Bexhill people weren't actually there initially and <laughs> Um, yeah, it's just a wonderful railway. It's there, and all the money goes to the museum. And so, if people want to visit, or well, it sounds absolutely fantastic. It sounds actually superior to Reich's Marshal Goering's train set as well. <laughs> <laughs> we were competing with him. We were competing. <laughs> the, 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 the pictures of it are amazing. I mean, they're, they're quite extraordinary. And plainly, the, the snow is permanent. There's no, once you put the snow on, that, 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 that's that. There was so much snow that winter of 1940 that they, Dad said, this is what he was saying to me, and that they gave me the idea. He said they had, to, they had to compact it and just drive on top of the snow. They, they were chucking it into the sea. I had this image of, of, of lorries dumping into the sea snow, just a weird thing. And also he came back and his, his grandmother, my great-grandmother, um, had died just seven days before he got there. He was very close to her. You know, those days of, of people used to sleep in the same beds. He used to share a bed with the grandmother and, and, and she was profoundly deaf and so would, I think, talk to each other in basic sign language. I don't think dad knew sign language, but he was very close to her. Suddenly she's gone, gone from life. And she tried to evacuate herself out. She was that scared and maybe the pressure had got to her. And so I said, dad, we're going to have an image of a little boy giving a present to a a, a, an older lady and that's going to be you giving your present to your your grandmother and we'll have that on the it's on the railway set and it's there forever 
this little boy wow. giving over a present that never happened but could have happened or should have happened. And so it's got it's got that point. And the sounds, we've taken samples from 1930s southern trains, the sounds, and, and the kids can press the buttons, so it's fun first. Oh, it sounds absolutely amazing. It is. It's, it worked really well. We thought, you know, they like the people like the family is our family railway, but this they've just gone nuts on. And uh, I like people to see it because then money comes into the museum and people go to Bexhill and, and the Delaware Pavilion's in it and all that stuff. We just need to take a quick break. We'll see you in a tick. Over 25 years ago, on September 29th, 1998, we watched a brainy girl with curly hair drop everything to follow a guy she only kind of knew all the way to college. And so began Felicity. My name is Juliette Littman, and I'm a Felicity superfan. Join me, Amanda Foreman, who you may know better as Megan, the roommate, and Greg Grunberg, who you may also know as Sean Blunberg, as the three of us revisit our favorite moments from the show and talk to the people who helped shape it. Listen to Dear Felicity, presented by Walmart on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. 25 Saturday nights, 50 matches, all season long on ION. Out in front to Williams, slips through, here's a shot, and it's in! This is a game changer for sports. Sabina takes a shot herself! Hammers it home! Oh my goodness! See the full schedule and find where to watch at IONNWSL.com. There's a lot that could impress you about the all-new Honda Prologue EV. True, it's got class-leading passenger space and clean, thoughtful design and intuitive technology. But what really sets the Prologue apart from the competition is that it's more than an EV. It's a Honda. Honda, the power of dreams. Visit honda.com slash prologue to learn more. Uh, uh, so, tell me, so where, where did your interest in the war develop from? Is, is that just because every self, you know, regarding person of a certain age living in England naturally is interested in the Second World War? Or, or I mean, was it was it sort of watching the Battle of Britain movie and, and Commando comics and things? Or, or where, did, where did it come from? It was those comics and it was Battle of Britain film. And at the end of the Battle of Britain film, if you remember, unusually it says, it says where it's shot, first of all, it has... Shot in, in live in, in Spain and in Britain and uh, in England. And it says, and also at Pinewood Studios, Ivor Heath Bucks. And I was, I was trying to get in the film industry aged 13, whatever, 14 at this point. And I was, I copied that down and I found out where Pinewood Studios was. And I took, and I went up there and tried to break in to get into the film industry <laughs> because of, I think it's because of that very film. But on the, on the real answer to your question, I think some people are fascinated. Some people aren't. There's two. I've realized there's two enormous wars that I, I am semi-encyclopedic on. One is this, and one is the Civil War, which I've heard you talk about, American Civil War, and it's, it's not necessarily your, your, in your area. But I've realized, I said, why are these two? They seem quite different, but they're both against racist ideologies, which I think um, I, just, I just would have signed up. First World War, I find a lot more confusing and a lot more, everyone's just murdering everyone and no one's going anywhere. But it was to try to stop the Nazis. In the, and of course, the Civil War was not initially to stop slavery, but it was to keep the Union going together. But slavery was underpinning it. And there were abolitionists and there were anti-slavery people. But Lincoln's, the film Lincoln and Lincoln um, Team of Rivals is the one to, to look at. Because Lincoln was amazing because he was just a lawyer when he came in to be president. He wasn't a s- senator coming in. He wasn't a governor coming in. He was a one-time congressman who'd been a congressman 12 years before for two years and had not made any splash at all. And he came in and he was the right guy to be in. They all thought he was an idiot or just a luck or, or the, the compromise candidate. But in fact, he really could do it. And uh, him and Grant, US Grant, is uh, the two of the most amazing ones out of that. But anyway, so those, so I, yeah, I was going to be in, I was going to be in forces, but then I thought, where, which war will they send me to? Can I choose my wars? And of course, you can't be in forces and just choose, oh, I'll go to this one. I won't go to that one. Can I go to the one after that one? <laughs> That's not how it works. You've- You're going to Iraq, son. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, you're going to wherever they send you to, or not, because if you take the war before, the American-Mexican War before, which was the one where a lot of the soldiers in from West Point, they all had got their first battle experience yeah, that's right. in that one. 1848. Um, yeah, to, to Cumster Sherman 
couldn't get in there. He just couldn't get to the war. They wouldn't. They sent him on boats through the Panama Canal up to San Francisco. He, you know, pleading. You can imagine pleading, begging, can you put me in the thing? No, you're not in. And Grant got there, but he says, you're in charge of uh, your quartermaster. And but I can I can fight I can lead no 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 quartermaster but I can no no yeah and yeah how these you know we we know about this from everything you've written about the military some people are brilliant some people are not but that's the same in all walks of life and they were both held back and then Sherman and Grant ended up being you know the powerhouse of the Union side along with Sheridan who was a lot younger than him, about ten years younger than him and McPherson yeah. would have been great as well I wonder why there was never a Sheridan tank. There was a Sheridan tank, Jim. Don't panic. Okay, few. There was. Don't about that. <laughs> was it? Did it come before the Sherman or after? Did it, it comes after the? It comes after the. I'm gonna um, look it up right now. Uh, the Sherman. It's the M five five one. It's a light tank, so it's, so it follows on from the Stuart sort of idea. It's oh, a recce, okay. Recce, well, I thought that was a that was a chaffy. No, no. The, no, the chaffy slightly slightly heavier. <laughs> okay. So, uh, but is there a Grant it's, tank? It's the bulldog. There's yeah, the Grant. There's the Grant. The Grant. Well, that's the that's the thing. Is the the this the M Grant Lee. There's oh, yeah. two variants of the same thing called. The oh Grant yeah, but it's not a Second Lee. World War, so no wonder I don't know. Well, of course you don't know because yeah, exactly. It's not a Second World War tank. The the the, yeah. the, the chaffy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm not interested. That's dead to me. And the Grant's the thing that precedes the Sherman, so it's the same chassis, the same power plant, and it's while they before they figure out how to get a turret on top that works properly. So the Grant has a. 75 millimeter main gun and then a but it's only got a little tiny traverse hasn't it yeah exactly tiny traverse and then it's got a and then it's got a um a cannon on the turret and it and they they come to the desert in 42 and the british are you know sherman rangers are going around in grant lees aren't they or lees or grants i can have the, the, the difference is subtle between a lee and a grant yeah. they're the same configuration and they modelled it on the French tanks of the, the early French tanks, which have a main gun and a secondary gun. They, the, the Americans go to the French for that advice, for or look look to the French example. And then the Sherman follows, which is the same, the same body, chassis, the same chassis, same chassis, same wheels, but but a, but, a, but a different turrets. Once they figured out how to do a turret, a cast turret that will traverse fully. Jim, you you write about them using Lees in. Um, in Burma, where they yeah yeah they came into their own. They're obsolete, absolutely fantastic there in Europe and and the desert, but but in Burma they're really really useful. Yeah, it really comes into its own in Burma because the the ranges tend to be a lot shorter, uh, where, where that old seven you know that sort of side seventy five gun is really good, and also the, the machine guns they have on them are just really good for what they what they're doing, and the yeah. Japanese don't really have anything that can knock them out because no. they don't really have anti tank guns because it's not really part of their. I mean they do, but but not really, not in any number. Uh, and a lot of their bunkers are kind of wooden, so rather than concrete. So these things are actually quite effective. And it's a great use of them because they've got lots of them left over from early production. And no one wants them in Europe anymore. So let's send them to Burma. What's not to like? Can I throw something into what I said earlier? The, you know, the Casablanca um, Saturday Night Live, Kate McKinnon is that she's brilliant. Uh, she, um, you know, Al is a student of comedy. You like her stuff. She plays, um, is it Ilsa? Who's. Um, Elsa, yeah. Elsa, the love interest. And she does this very weird accent. And she, you know, she's done amazing uh, different sketches. She tried for ages to get in Saturday Night Live. They just wouldn't have her. And suddenly they said, well, we've got to have it. And, then, and she's won Emmys and stuff. But it's, it's her version of Saturday Night Live, Kate McKinnon. And it's brilliant. And just her name just went out of my head for a second. Yeah. But I have a follow-up question to that, which has got nothing to do with that. And I want, you, I want to see your opinion on this. <laughs> Um, it, it's got left and right, but it's, a, it's an overarching World War II thing, or maybe a sort of early, you know, a 1900s question. That in the end, you know, with the, the Nazi Soviet non aggression pact, and they go in and they say they got on kind of, it was easy for each side to understand each other. Obviously, none of us are like what they were doing at, at all. The Nazis, the Soviets, saying, you're going to take this people, this side over, and we're going to kill people here, and you take that side, and you kill people over there. And I just remember saying that because of, you know, the the murders happened on, on obviously on the Nazi side, but on the Soviet side against the Polish people there, which we know of. And I just wondered, in the end, this national socialist idea, it was supposed to be about so it's about the people, but in fact, it's about one guy, it's about Hitler's ego. And then the Soviet thing is supposed to be about the people, but it's about one guy, and that's Stalin's ego. And it's it's almost the same thing. They almost at the flip side of the coin, but all they, it, right around the circle, they almost joined up at the back. And in the end, Hitler started copying what the Russians were doing because they put those political officers into the troops. And they could, 
it's an unusual. It, it just seemed to me that, particularly between Stalin and Hitler, they were just running them almost in the same way, and doing mass murders left, right, and centre. Yes, they're, they're certainly sort of they're sort of simpatico to each other in 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 a, in a strange way, aren't they? And, I mean, you do. What, what's interesting is the, the the language with which the Soviets dismantle what's their part of Poland is all framed in is all framed in you know revolution and class war and all that sort of stuff. But they're effectively doing the same thing, aren't they? They denude they denude Poland of of the of its really. I, I worked with with Melga Droik recently, and her grandfather was a senator in um in the in the Polish Senate, and was one of the people that was liquidated by Stalin because he was he was ruling class. But it's the same. They're doing the same thing, aren't they, Jim? They're decapitating the the Polish state, removing the people who might have any you know influence and power. And installing their own. Yeah, but it's, the difference is, it's just not. It's not racist. It's just. It's, yeah, it's just. No, it's not. It's not racist. Although, although it's sort of. It's. It, yes, it's political. It's, it's, I suppose. You yes, could it's say. centered around class, isn't it? Um, rather than rather than race, but it kind of ends up. A but that's a big difference, because because Hitler Hitler is obviously a rabid racist. I mean, he you know he just he's not just anti-Semitic. He's anti-Slav, anti you know everything who's not anyone who's not Aryan. And you would have thought he'd be anti-Japanese. Wouldn't he? Because you'd have thought the Japanese doesn't come into his Aryan. Yes, which just goes to show how completely sort of rotten the whole thing is. Because there's this, there's this sort of um, inconsistencies on the whole thing. Where well, where yeah, but of, he can flick a switch. I mean, it's. I mean, try, trust me. If he if he sort of conquered the whole of the European and Eurasian landmass, I, mean, I don't think Japan would stay on his side. Put it that way. No, but if you're Ukrainian in the 30s, you're on the receiving end of it, essentially. A, you know, a racist colonial policy from from Moscow, aren't you? Anyway, so yes, it's it is built around class rather than race, but it's, it it manifests itself essentially in in the same vein, in, in the same thing, and, and it's kind of in racist forms. And then after the war, of course, he he brings about there's the Doctor's Purge and all that sort of stuff, where he's the Doctor's he's obsessed with Jews as well. So you end up you end up he ends up in the same place essentially, you know, and that's the the, the fundament of a lot of far end of uh, of soviet anti-semitism comes from stalin after the war so it, it is peculiar how they sort of meet in the middle and you you know there are these amazing photos of red army uh people celebrating with german officers high command people in poland you know meeting and and drinking together and yeah yeah uh, uh essentially high-fiving each other at the successful destruction of poland because after all you know stalin had been humbled by the poles in in the in the soviet polish war and the Germans regarded Poland as an affront to the, you know, the existence of Poland as an yeah, affront yeah. to Germany in itself. So they're both, both, you know, they've, they've, there's enough motivation and their methods, their methods sort of coincide purely through ruthlessness, I think. Yeah, sure. But, but, but also, you know, it's sort of extreme left wing and right wing, you, you know, it's not a straight line, is it? It's, it's more like the horns of the buffalo <laughs> sort of curl, curl back in again. It's, it's a big, so it's sort of a tiny little gap in the middle. Horseshoe theory. Yeah. 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 It's, it's like extremely theory, exactly. cool and looking like a dickhead. I used to talk about that. That if you are extremely cool, you're essentially looking like a dickhead. But you, they can say to other dickheads, "No, you don't know why you, you're looking cool. You're actually look like a dickhead." Um, That's very good. A horseshoe theory of cool. That's very strong. It's, I love yes, it. I, I, think, I think one of the things I think is is different though is I think Nazism is basically la la land. I mean, it is. It's basically sort of a fantasy world where they're just sort of making up as they go along and to a certain extent, and they're they're creating this. You know, they're creating heritage myths. They're creating all sorts of stuff that's going on. You know, they're creating all sorts of things that sort of justify how, how they should do things. It's just pure fantasy, and it is built on incredibly shaky foundations, which is why sort of very quickly it all starts to crumble. You know, the, the sort of iron will of the Fuhrer and, and then the kind of fear of Armageddon is what, what keeps the masses going in the war kind of after Stalingrad and the Sports Palace um, speech by Goebbels in February 1943. But it is still a, you know, the world of the Nazis is, is a fantasy world, I think. Whereas I don't think you can quite say the same thing about Soviet Russia. You know, it's, it's a very chillingly brutal world, but, but it's not a fantasy world. It's much more sort of real. It's every bit as warped, but I don't think it's... Oh, I don't know. I think like Lysenkoism and all that sort of stuff, the way that the science ends up drifting because it has to move away from established, you know, Western modes of thought. I think there's a big enough dollop of fantasy in the, in the Soviet model of things. I don't know. I would just, I would just always think, think the sort of difference between, I, I don't know. There's just a sort of cool 
chill to kind of Sovietness. There's obviously, Nazism is extremely chilling, but there does seem to me to be kind of fundamental differences, even though they are kind of, you know, the, even despite the horseshoe theory. Well, there's also the thing of it, there's Lenin's version of what communism is supposed to be, and then Stalin, which it was much more wrapped up in Stalin and the godlike Stalin. And even, I don't think Lenin, Lenin said before, as he was dying, watch out for Stalin. And then, you know, Stalin just killed everyone, took everyone aside. And Trotsky got him ice picked and all that kind of stuff. It was a, it was a cult, cult of the individual. And uh, you know the Hitler myth. You know the Hitler myth. And is it Ian Kershaw's his idea of just making them into this this godlike person? And they made Stalin into a godlike person. Oh, he encouraged his people or Beria did it or whoever did that. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we're coming to character here, aren't we? And, and you know, Stalin's Russia is drenched in paranoia, which is really what it comes down to, isn't it? Which is his characteristic. And Hitler's is this sort of complete fantasy view of the world. I mean, it's the thing we've talked about this often on the podcast before. You know, at the end of the war, when Himmler Himmler takes people out of Auschwitz, doesn't he, Jim? And he, and he offers them as a bargaining chip to the Allies, saying, "Look, I can save some Jews for you if you want," because he really believes that the that Jews run the world. So he thinks if he goes to the Americans and offers them some Jews, they'll go brilliant. Okay. That's what our bosses want. And that the people are actually thinking like that. That's such a late stage of the war. In the very top of the Nazi structures, I think is 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 amazing. Is is one of those things that's truly incredible and very revealing. Well, it makes you realise what they've lost because they're, they're they're run by kind of, you know, shit for brains like him. I mean, you know, absolutely insane. But did Himmler actually think that or did he just think, I'm, I'm going to get some people who are Jewish and add the other thing? And- no, I, I, I genuinely think he, re- think he thought I think that. He re- I think he really thought that, yeah. He really he thought really that the Allies that. would be open to bargaining because why would the Allies want this world from the Soviet Union? They could well be up for bargaining. He was going, he was going to say when he met Eisenhower, does he do the Hitler salute or does the, the, the military salute? You know, stuff like this. Yeah. And Heil Hitler, going on saying Heil Hitler, which they had to do after the uh, Valkyrie attempt and everything, it's, I realize essentially going around saying "Hello, Hitler." I know he isn't quite saying that, but it's just hi, 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 Hitler. Hello, Hitler. Hi, hello, Hitler. Hello, Hitler. How does that feel? I mean, when you're dressed up in all the kit and everyone else is dressed up in all the, I know it's an acting job, and so you're, you know, you're not getting lost in it. But how does that feel? Well, I it was tricky. I, I had a six-page scene with Tom Cruise on my first day, and I was just getting used to wearing a general's uniform so that was that you look was very tough. dapper could, in it i have to say i mean you know you can see that one photograph there it was <laughs> um yeah that's the, that's the photograph i liked it's it's the first day it was a tough it was a tough morning for me but i tell you some some weird things about it so being in the uniform didn't hugely bother me because i knew he was a he was a signals guy. He'd been in the First World War. The, my guy, uh, General Erich Felgebel, was not the powerhouse of Nazi, but he'd sort of gone with them, and he was probably a nationalist. And I went for a run in the middle of the night, actually, up to where the place where he was executed after the attempt on the thing. And so I, I went to find that prison, which is kind of weird, running through a rather hot and humid 2 a.m. Berlin. And the only things that were open were, were Greek and Turkish cafes, which I thought would piss Hitler off. So I was very pleased with that. <laughs> but I was just around that. And I could only talk in German to people. I was saying, is it been here? The, the Urban is here? Oh, yeah. When I was learning German, when I was before, I was I performed there for two months. And uh, I found this great thing, which anyone should do. Sometimes the temperatures go way down in Berlin, minus 20 or something, minus 50, minus 20. So if you get on the S-Bahn, uh, S41 or S42, S Einsfertig and Seinsfertig, and uh, it goes around like our central line in London, but above ground. So you can actually see Berlin. I was having my German lessons while looking out over Berlin with, with snow. Again, it was yeah, snow. Yeah, that's the way to go. Yeah, obsessed with snow. But uh, the thing I'm, we, were, we were filming, I think it's the uh, old Luftwaffe building. It's still there. It still looks very, you know, kind of full-blown and Nazi. I think it was made for the yeah. Nazis. Anyway, is this the Reichs Ministry? I think the Reichs Ministry, yeah. yeah. that, that is it, definitely still there, as is the Propaganda Ministry. Yeah, and the uh, the, the the outside of the, uh, is it Tegel Airport? The airport that's again, looks like it's built for yes. them, if it wasn't built for them. Uh, It's not Tegel, it's the other one. Um, I can't remember what it's called. Um, yes, but we were at the I one, know the, one, the big sort of curved one. Big curved one. And we and there were tons of Nazi flags out. Now, one thing is you start getting used to Nazi flags and you just sort of ignore them. Tempelhof. Tempelhof, that's, that's what it's called, yeah. So we, my brother was there, my dad was there, and we got photographs and everyone's just happy and, you know, hey, we're doing a film, taking photographs. And, and we realised in the background there's all these bloody Nazi flags, which is 
which is bizarro. And the other thing was there was lots of German people in Berlin who were um, dressed in, in German uniforms. And uh, during a break between filming, my brother, was he was hanging around, he went to the loo, and there were a lot of German soldiers in the loo. So he was having a pee in one of those, you know, men's loo's things, and a lot of German soldiers in German uniforms talking German were also having a pee, which he found very psychologically odd. Like, it was suddenly he was in a film or something, you know. So that was... Can you imagine? That was just uh, bonkers. You did, you did shoot it in Berlin, so you, so it's it's the place and the recreation of the time. That's quite extraordinary. And the uh, Bendlerhof, is it the uh, the Bendler building, the Bendlerhof? Bendlerblock. Um, Bendlerblock. Bendlerblock. Yeah, that's yeah. where they were executed. Four of them, including von Stauffenberg, and they had to bargain for a long time to get permission to do that. And it was recreated in exactly the same place. And I was there to see that, so that was quite moving. And um, just a lot Very. of it's really good. Ju- very good German actors there, British actors, Dutch actors, and it's just, you know, and I'm this kid who'd been trying to get the films for ages, and then we are, and I also know a lot about World War Two, and we're there in, in Berlin doing that. And uh, It must have been, uh, I'm, I don't know whether fun's the right word, but it must have been very exhilarating, I should think. Yes, it is. It, it's fun making a film. I mean, I've made horror films. You know, I've done ones that, the Hannibal Lecter TV series, and, and uh, that's horrific what you're doing, but it's, you're making a... I just, I just love making films. It's my first love. Comedy is something I, I came across along the way, but yeah. And and you know, Berlin has just got all this history just lying there, and it's got GDR history lying about yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, of course. And the wall and stuff. And there's all, as you you guys will know, there's the the bit where Hitler's bunker thing, and they took that apart. So it's just a car park. And but they've got a little pla- no, it's not a placard. It's definitely not a placard. It's just a board that says this is it was around here, guys. This when this happened because they're trying to get not have not neo Nazis coming around doing it. And I was showing someone. I was saying, look, that's where it happened. And I and I said it was probably about there because I could work it out from my general sense of where things were. And as I was pointing to the area where Hitler was body was set fire to, a, a dog was peeing on that area. And I thought. Uh, that dog's very clever. <laughs> um, that where that dog's peeing, that's where it was. So um, I think that yeah, dog that's perfect. Something. Have you um, have you read Look Who's Back? No, what's what's that? Oh my god, you're in for such a treat. I was going to ask that because you said when you said how annoying Hitler might exactly might find Turkish people. So basically, it's the story. The idea is Hitler wakes up in Berlin in 2013 in, in a car in park. 2013 in the car park and is back. And he can't remember what's happened between doesn't remember the what's happened, and he stumbles around Berlin. And one of the bits he sees a dry cleaner called Blitz Dry Cleaners, and he thinks, "You see, our our method of war is now world famous. And look, Turkish people work here as slaves for us, and all this sort of thing." <laughs> and, uh, it's and, really, and, and really, it's really funny, and it's written from his point of view. So the author, the author went straight into read a lot of you know red mind speeches really, and so it's written yeah. in that style and there's a bad film of it but basically the book's brilliant i, I read it in berlin which was which just felt like a it's a, a, so right so funny do. and he ends up a comedy star playing the character of hitler and and he has a jewish assistant doesn't he exactly this bizarre ironic space where people think oh he's just being ridiculous and he means it all and it, it's it's the most it's the most extraordinary book and very evocative of Berlin itself, but also, you know, this Hitler crash, sort of crash landing in t- 2013 in Berlin and, and having to get his head around where Germany is. You know, we must have won, is, the, is of course, his assumption. It's an incredible book. It's so funny. It, it, I mean, it makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable that you're laughing, but it is really, it is, it is really funny. And it's sort of okay because it's written by a German. <laughs> Yeah, but but anyway, I mean, I, honestly, I think you're in for a treat. I, I, I'd rush out and get it immediately. You, I, you have my permission to put Normandy 44 on hold. There will be an audio. There must be an audio book of it. I can't, no, I'm in be. Normandy. I, I have to. I have to keep going through Normandy 44. <laughs> um, that's, um, that's, that's, you've done a number of films, though, haven't you? War films, because you also did Six Minutes to, to Midnight, which I I really enjoyed. I have to say. Yeah, but Six Minutes was. You know, it's a fascinating thing. There was a school in Bex again. Bexley Sea doesn't have to all centre around Bexley Sea, but just two of the things I'm talking about today do. And uh, it was a girls' school, and uh, von Ribbentrop's daughter was there. 
we know, and there was a princess, uh, there, and it was oh, Himmler's goddaughter was also there. Um, we know that the, the, the kids the, so were throwing apples at them and stuff, and, and they, they all evacuated, and they, they, they all went away in 38 when everyone thought it was all going to kick off, and then they came back, and, it got, and they said, we're going to win the war. They, the girls were saying, we're going to win the war. It was, so the story is about them, and it's a slightly fictitious story. that The school existed, the girls existed, um, and then we put a story on top of it about what happened at that time, just as war was kicking off. So um, yeah, it was it was great, and and so uh, and that's all true. And and they had this badge. The thing that I first saw was a badge, and it had the it was a school badge, the Augusta Victoria College in Bexhill on Sea. It has that written on it, and it has a British flag, and it has a Nazi swastika on it. And I thought, holy cow, that's a film right there. And so that's what turned into the film, yeah. And that's also, <laughs> at the museum, they have, I think they have the details of that and some of the costumes of that. The, the costumes were the actual, we did facsimiles of, of the uniforms they used to wear. And there was a, there was a, sh there's a shot in the, from the Times of all the girls lined up with Herr Blomberg, who was a German defence minister, I think, at the time, uh, at the, the crowning of uh, George, the, what did we... George the sixth, uh, yeah. just yeah. just after yeah. Eddie eight, after Eddie eight, yeah. George six, and they're there. They're all doing the Nazi salute up the thing. And I talked to one girl who was a British girl who'd, who'd been an au pair with them and helping out and stuff. And she'd gone up to the German embassy and and she said they were of course all Zieg Heiling all around the place. I said I said you went were you? And she said yes I was. So there was a young English girl who'd got taken in. Has got you know enamored by that. And this is probably something I, I thought about me and maybe any of us. If Would I, there but for the grace of humanity, go all of us, would I, if I'd grown up in Nazi Germany, would I have signed up? Or would I have, like, you know, some, you know, Sophie Scholl, could I have been so, as brave as Sophie Scholl and her brother Hans Scholl, the Witter Rose, the White Rose group in Munich, the birthplace of the Nazis, and, and they got beheaded for leafleting they got beheaded for leafleting. This needs to be remembered. And there were, it's just so difficult to stand. Once, once it was, once they, they kidnapped the entire country to stand up and say, no, you got hung, you got shot, you were into a concentration camp, you got murdered, guillotined. They were guillotined um, for leafleting. Um, it's just such a horrific thing. Well, it's the imponderable, though, isn't it? What would I have done if I'd been, yeah. if you'd had the, you know, which upbringing have you had? Because they were, they were, she was a sort of a nonconformist from a nonconformist family, wasn't she? So they yeah, were, she was, yeah. they were people who, they were people who ran against the grain anyway. Mm. And I don't know that my upbringing would have run against the grain. I, I just, uh, it, it, it's sort oh, of, you've, um, got to, you've got to believe you're, you're, you're standing on the side of the right, just haven't you? You've got to believe it. Well, you have to, you have to. You hope. I did uh, a thing which was uh, in France when I was 18. Uh, this doesn't really work, but it's, it almost works. It was a, they repaired old buildings. So, so people from around Europe, maybe around the world, probably middle class parents, they would pay money for their kids to go over and learn French and they would help repair buildings. But in fact, it, it seems like a scam because the, everyone you were hanging out with was from anywhere but France. The person running it was, it was an Icelandic woman. Um, and so the only word I learned, I was in the South, I was in Antibes, the millionaire's playground, and I learned this word, obulo, obulo, which means work, work. <laughs> okay. And I, after five days, I was supposed to be there two weeks, after five days, I walked out, I thought with a very pithy line, I said, this is no way to run a slave labor camp. And I walked out the door. <laughs> and, and I just, I, I, <laughs> um, which I think was lost on everyone, but I thought it was, it was very funny. It, yeah, that is really but funny. It was, it was a slave labor camp. It was, it was, yeah. it, well, we were, but, but they were getting paid money for us to do the work. Just keep working. And it was really hot. You know, it's the south of France. And you weren't allowed to go in the sea. You weren't allowed to go into town. I'm going, I'm 18. I'm, I, they, they, it was in the castle. And it had huge, you know, 100 foot walls. Or, and, uh, but they had this huge letterbox the size of a human. So I felt I could roll myself out the letterbox and go into town. <laughs> so I think, um, you know, I was, I was enamored with doing things my way. I'd broken into Pinewood, you know, I'd broken into Shepperton Studios. I'd done very odd things because. And this is what this is what linked me up with special forces. I just was interested. In, I was happy to do things in the way that it's not supposed to be done. So uh, yeah, the you know if you were special forces, you would you just wouldn't do the standard method. You'd think if you came up with a better idea. We were doing a, a cadet thing at school, and they said you've got to make your way back 
uh, over the thing using these trig references on this ordnance survey map. And me and this kid, Paul Wedge, I said to him, let's just get a bus. So we got sat the back of the bus with our guns, which I don't think is legal, <laughs> but we sat in the back of the bus and all these schoolgirls staring at us. And we just took a bus back to the school. And, um, and then we just hid in our lockers. Uh, back at the house until it, you know, gave it enough time for most people to start getting back, and then otherwise it would look too wrong. But I just thought that's what you should do: just think clever, think clever. Think that's different. that Dad's Army episode, isn't it? Brain, brain versus brawn, where um, they have to get a bomb into a building, and, and Sergeant Wilson puts it in the post, sends it by post. They try all sorts of stuff. And it turns out he's posted it. That's not quite the special forces I was thinking of, but I'd heard that that was supposed to be based on. Warwickshire on Sea was supposed to be kind of Bexhill on Sea, but I don't think it was actually. Well, but it was region. because they used to go through Eastbourne and then they go and it was the next stop. And we were kind of the next stop at Eastbourne, but Eastbourne is actually a terminus. You have to back into it and then and then go back <laughs> out the other way. Oh, there was another film I did. There was two. There's two other films I did, which is interesting to talk about. One is All the Queen's Men, which got kind of hammered by the by the critics, but it is about getting a Ning machine out, which was probably not true, but it, it was shot in Vienna. And the director is fantastic. He, you know, is an Oscar winner um, now for best uh, foreign film, and he'd been Oscar nominated beforehand, but the critics just decided around on this and say they didn't like it. But it was kind of a romp, um, but some good actors in it, and Matt LeBlanc's in it, and uh, uh, anyway, there's that film. And then there's uh, The Castles in the Sky about the... Invention of Radar, which I think was a... Oh, yes, 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 yes. No, I have seen that. I have seen that. Yeah, and he got... No, I thought that was really good. Yeah, my, my brother was, was positive on what my what, my acting in that, which, to get that out of my, my elder brother, Mark, is uh, he doesn't really... He gives compliments <laughs> very... Sparely, is it? Sparely, yes, yes. His bedside manner is... No, that wasn't very good. Was so, it? Um, did you, you... You played Watson what in that? Yeah, so Robert Watson what? So I had to... Uh, his accent, actually, I, I went for this because uh, he's from north of Dundee and he went to Dundee University, so I kind of based Dundee. it around it. But, yeah, Dundee, which is not Edinburgh, it's not uh, Glasgow, but there's a lot of Glasgow people on the set. So I just stayed in the accent the entire time. But, um, in fact, if you listen to his accent, it's kind of English because I think he had sort of old-fashioned English racism, saying Scots, Welsh, Northern Irish, uh, no, 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 it's got to be English. And so if you just make your accent English, then you'd probably get in easier. But the fact that he was doing weather and he thought, you know, bouncing waves off, off cloud formations could work on aeroplanes. It's kind of an amazing thing. So we uh, it, we shot that and it was with the Open University as well. So they checked all the, all huh. the science to make sure it was... Right. <laughs> Spot on. Director, yeah, the director was going around saying, no, it's not good for the story. I mean, you know, I'm not an expert on radar, but I, I didn't I have to say I didn't notice any any, any howlers or anything. It all, it all seemed, <laughs> seemed to ring true. Yes, because I've seen one of your videos where you do look for howlers, don't you? You go around looking and say, that's okay, yeah, oh, yeah, No, you can't yes. help it. You can't help it. It's, no. You say, okay, that's wrong. That's wrong. Well, oh, I didn't do it like that. It's, it's awful. Yeah. It really ruins it. Yeah, it's uh, it's nice. So the Waterloo film that's got, not Waterloo, the Napoleon film coming out, I said, is that... In your military wheelhouse, or? Oh, yeah, no, no, I definitely want to watch it. Yeah, but all the Napoleonic history um, p people I follow, oh, they're all up in arms about it. And Ridley Scott has kind of has said some sort of, you know, he said, ah, the first two books written about Napoleon, they're the ones you want to read, that all the rest are just like repeating, treading water <laughs> or whatever. And he's so he's really upset a ton of them, um, which is, but also by the same token, they're glad there's a film because it means people will be interested. So that looks good. Take the rough, and it looks amazing. They're having to take with the rough with the smooth, basically. But it just needs to be a ten-part TV series, doesn't it? You can't, I mean, you can't even scrape the scrape the top of the iceberg with yeah. all these all these auteurs that kind of make these films that last for three and a half hours. That's the thing, big thing for me. I haven't got time to go into cinema for three and a half hours. <laughs> I've got a novel to finish. God damn it! <laughs> Here's another thing for me to throw it to you two, which is my idea of the overcompensators. A man from Corsica becomes more French than the French. A man from Austria becomes more German than the German. Yes. Um, a man from Georgia becomes more Russian than the Russians. Yes. Yeah? That's a now, very interesting thing, point. I never thought of that. And that happens a lot, I think. Um, the people who say, you think I'm not good enough to be this, I will show you. I will so overdo this thing that you're going to say, well, you're godlike. And, uh, well, Winston Churchill's mother's American as well. I mean, you know... It's interesting. He 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 really didn't want to associate with that, did he? Even though he, in the end, he needed to be American. But having read a lot about Churchill, he never seemed to say, 
I've got to get there. I've got to get the accent. I've got to, I've got to grab hold of this thing. Um, he should have been. I wonder if he paid taxes because if you're born there, you're supposed to pay taxes as well. But um, I doubt that very much. But, but he was born in the toilet at Woodstock, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. In Palace, he was born. Oh, he was yeah. ah, he was born there. Yes, no, yes, he wasn't. It's just, it's just his mother. You know, he's all right in that front. He'd wiggled out of it anyway. Yeah, it's um, no, that that is interesting. He does not really grab hold of his American, and even though he went there and he talked to both on Capitol Hill, he talked to the Senate and the House of Representatives, and he did that combined houses thing chat. Wasn't he one of the few people? Was that after after the war? Might have been after the war with the that was um, after the war from I think from Stettin. In the Egypt, uh, no, in the uh, in the Baltic. And then he did his Iron Curtain speech, didn't he? But that was in someone like Ohio, wasn't it? In the Baltic. Yeah, he was. It is amazing. He was one of the his speech patterns are all over the shop, but it yeah. became so distinctive, and his uh, yeah. the words going with it. We will find them on the beaches. Where he takes it right down at places, and it's very. If you copy it, it's all over the shop. And also, he do, he does that Australian thing of turning everything into a question, um, of sort of going up at the end of a sentence as well. We shall never surrender. But he was the right person at the right time. The interesting thing you're talking about, I think, about him and Halifax and and that thing. There's two different reported things of what happened. Whether who, should, you know, I think Halifax sort of pulled himself out of the thing, so it was given to, to Churchill, and he and he'd just been involved in in uh, Norway, which. I was getting the impression for I think what you were writing that he it, what he wasn't so much to blame for Norway. Is that right? Well, the timing's out, and the, the, there's a problem in that the army don't really know what they're trying to achieve. Although, as Jim Jim will tell you, it's a ne- it's a net win for the Royal Navy, which then which then becomes really really important with the prospect of a, a the possibility of a German invasion. Is that the Kriegsmarine? So much of the Kriegsmarine is at the bottom of the sea as a result of the Norway campaign that it you know it, it's for the for the British strategically big picture. It is it it is actually a win. But it just looks terrible because you're having to pull soldiers out and all this sort of stuff. And the, the land component goes very, very badly. And you lose an aircraft carrier in the aftermath. But the fact that the Kriegsmarine takes such a kicking. So what, how, how many did they lose? Did they lose a whole bunch of ships there? Oh, absolutely loads. They, they, they lose two thirds of their destroyers or something. I mean, it's, it's, it's a bit of... It's, it's yeah they they I can't remember I haven't got them off the top of my head but but and it really it really shows how the Kriegsmarine is, has no depth you know it, it uh, and also you navy. can't you can't just magic up a, a navy that's that I, I think of all the all the armed forces the navy is the hardest one to kind of just magic up you need to you abs you you need that kind of ex, that core of experience to run through it and and they just don't have that they don't and, have that. and Napoleon didn't have that either no 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 the, the French navy was not 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 up to scratch. Yeah. Well, anyway. we, uh, what's going to happen here, if we're not careful, is we will digress literally all day. And are you making a film? You, you, when I spoke to you the other day, you were learning lines or something in the middle of the night. Hamlet. Hamlet. I'm, I literally, I've, oh. I've, I haven't gone to sleep yet. I'm in Glasgow and I haven't gone to sleep. And I've, uh, I'm, I found it's the best time to learn lines is when you can't, no one's going to call you, no one's going to this, you know, you can't do anything. Just sit there because putting, I'm playing all the roles in Hamlet. I did this for Great Expectations just before, in the same theatre that you were in now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before you were in there. And that was So you're learning the entire play? Yeah. Oh, my God. But no, it's a cut down version, so it's it's two hours. It's it's two hours as opposed to five Even hours. So well, it's crikey. yeah, it's but it's playing all the roles. So I play Hamlet and I play Ophelia and I play Gertrude and I play Claudius and Polonius and the bloke with the hat and uh, yeah, and it's 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 the real oh. deal. It's it's Hamlet. It opens in on the nineteenth of January in uh, New York, so uh, in the same theatre where we open Great Expectations. So. We should delay you no longer. I feel like we're <laughs> burning well, up. Good luck with that. Time. Crikey, that's, uh, what an undertaking. <laughs> what an amazing thing to do. Yeah. Well, incredible. it's that. So I'm touring at the moment, so I'm learning that at night and then campaigning to be, uh, be in Brighton Pavilion down in, uh, in Brighton. So, yeah, just standard. Wow. It, it, it's a bit of an intense year. Wow. Well, well, all the very best for it, I have to say. Yeah, thanks Thanks so much for joining us. Um, ladies and gentlemen, we've been talking, and you realise this by now, we've been talking to Susie Eddie Izzard about the Second World War and, and much else. Um, and and many other chat. rabbit holes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> many other rabbit holes. Thanks very much. Great to talk to you again. Yeah, yeah, likewise. <laughs> thanks, everyone, for listening. We will see you again very soon. Bye-bye. Cheerio. Bye.